welcome back to the Growth Innovators Podcast. One of the biggest opportunities in fintech is the advent of SKU level receipt data. The insights and opportunities that access to such data could unlock are truly staggering. And in this episode, Manifold Advisory Partner John Sfiokla chats with Jahan Luth, founder and CEO of Banyan, which is a retail data interchange network. And they discuss the insights that SKU level receipt data could provide the financial sector and how that insight can power the future of fintech innovation. In full disclosure, Manifold Ventures is an investor in Banyan, but I think you're going to find this to be a really fascinating conversation. And with that, let's go to John and Jahan. Hello, everybody. John Spiokla here for the Growth Innovator Speaker Series at Manifold. Lovely to be here today with you all and to be able to have a chance to talk to my guest, Jahan Luth, an innovator and a CEO of a fantastic new company called Banyan. And the uh, spirit of full disclosure, the investment side of our firm has an investment in Banyan, and I've got to know Jayhan a little bit through that. And we're going to talk about really what the, the new data infrastructure that they're building out, some of his thoughts about fintech and its implications for um, consumers and so forth, both in general and as respects to what Banyan is trying to get done in the marketplace. Right now, uh, they are aiming to get $4 trillion of receipts through their system, which would be about a fifth of the entire economy. So we'll go through that and its implications. And I'm pretty excited about it because I think it gives us a whole new layer of, of understanding for commerce. So, Jayhan, welcome. Thank you for being here. Thank you. Thank you let me do a little me. setup. Um, well, it's great. The, let me, I'm going to come back to the biography, Jen, just before he starts in. Let me just give a little bit of background in terms of our agenda. Uh, we're going to talk about this notion of SKU level receipt data, so a whole other layer down from where we are today, what, how that relates to trends in financial technology and fintech, and really this next wave of, of customer experience. And then you'll be able to get handouts and so forth from this. We're going to talk about the rest of the story and our next speaker. For those of you who have been here before, there's a fundamental uh, philosophical approach here of these uh, this Growth Innovator Series, which is we're trying to understand what it really means to uh, strategy, organizations, economics, and society when the world becomes more computable. And we have this notion we call the law of computability, which is the more digitized things are, times the level of knowledge, which is constantly moving faster and faster in understanding. We'll get into some of this in today's uh, discussion means the world is becoming more computable. And as the world is more computable, you have more ability to change strategy and have new market power and understanding. And you can see that for everything from Google to uh, new drug discovery. And we're going to talk about retail customer behavior as you get digital twins of more and more of that reality. Good news is if you're, if you're early in that, you can have an advantage. The bad news is if you're not on top of it, you will lose to those who can compute what you can only approximate. So we're going to get to this power of SQ level data, as uh, SKU level data. But let me give you a little bit more on Jehan. Very interesting man. He grew up in an entrepreneurial family and was the only child of two entrepreneurs. So as he was telling me, he got to see every part of the business, including he was a young boy when he was in the back of the room while his parents were getting deposed in some legal activity. He grew up, as far as I can tell, as the IT director for a emerging conglomerate. That's now owned by the RS Luth Trust, a set of businesses that are in everything from poultry to construction. And so he has a wide range of capability. Actually went to culinary school for a while, was a professional or a, was a semi-professional golfer in India as a young man and, and was over at the uh, Chan School at Harvard, as well as at Campbell's. And in those roles, saw the need for the kind of data that he's now creating at Banyan. And being for an entrepreneurial family, decided to go ahead and tackle that problem 
and to really move ahead on that. So it's just a delight. I think you'll you'll find him interesting and and uh, fun and obviously uh, a true Renaissance man. I don't know if he plays any instruments. Didn't ask him that, but uh, he certainly has a wide ranging capability of being able to do everything from cook you a great meal to make you a great company. So Jehan. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you for the kind words. So uh, what, Jen, you and I talked a little bit about the, tell us a little bit about Banyan and what you're trying to get done and why it's important, why SKU level data really unlocks something different and how you think about the problem. What was that thing you saw when you were at Campbell's and you're at the Chan School at Harvard in terms of the necessary data that you didn't have and you thought would have value? Sure, sure. No, thank you for that. Um, I mean, if we take a, if you zoom out for just a hot second, and if you look at the entire financial services industry, the fintech industry, uh-huh. um, and even broadly asset management, right, as as a category, sure, the primary source of data that powers a lot of these institutions is actually data coming out of Visa, Mastercard, and the Amex rails, right. Uh-huh. And it, it's really valuable because it tells us where people are swiping their cards. And right. for a bank, that's really, really important information. Um, but the rails which Visa and MasterCard, uh, Amex, Discover, there's there's a few networks, right? The rails they laid have been in place for decades and decades. Right? This is not a new innovation by any means. And they were primarily created to authorize or decline transactions. Yeah. And that was the core premise, right? So it's built for efficiency and speed to authorize or decline a transaction. And yes. the reality is they were never built to carry the rich level of information and data that actually tells us a lot more about this specific transaction. So SKU level information, or, or that's more pertaining to retailers. But if you look more broadly, I'll call it receipt level information. Um, yes. So anywhere you swipe your card, there is a receipt. And there is an invoice of some sort, right? That's why you're transacting. But that level of information never flows through the bank. So if you look at your bank statement today, you'll see you spent $40 at retailer X. Yes. You don't see the items you purchase, right? right? And so it's, it's really a blind, it's a little blinding for the larger financial institutions, not knowing the items you purchase. And the reason I'm sharing this is because... Um, that level of information is really powerful, right? Not just for that financial institution, but I brought up my background at, from an epidemiology standpoint. Having this data has massive public health implications and benefits. Having this data powers some major, major benefits for consumers more broadly. And so the bigger problem was this data was never available. It was always lived in the retailers or the merchants' four walls. Mm-hmm. And there have been a lot of companies that have tried to get a hold of it, right? I'm sure many of uh, the participants on this call right now have filed an expense report once or twice in their life, and you've taken oh. a picture of a paper receipt once or twice. Yes. And it's so funny because something so digital becomes analog, right? And then back digital, right? You take a picture of a receipt. And so what Banyan really does is it bridges the gap, right? So it mm-hmm. doesn't need to have an and now an analog step, it stays digital the entire way. So you don't need to take a picture of a paper receipt anymore. It's it's seamless for the consumer. But anyways, yeah, the, the premise is this data is really valuable and it should be available to consumers wherever they want it. Mm-hmm. Could be your expense app, could be your banking app, wherever the consumer chooses. 
this notion of really unlocking this first party data. And could you just go a little more detail in terms of just explaining what you do, what the consumer experience is like, what the user of the data experience is like, like what are they buying from you? Yeah, yeah. So really important point is oftentimes, and you brought up Google and these companies prior in, in your introduction, mm-hmm. in kind of software, right? There's always an infrastructure layer and application layer, right. right? And where the infrastructure layers exist, take MasterCard and Visa as an example, it's very yes. easy to build a bank or a credit card on top of those rails right. because the infrastructure is laid by these massive companies for decades and decades, in the case and, of receipt, go ahead. Can you just, I, I think I understand that market just for our audience, just to, just to clarify about the duopoly that's there and then how that relates to the banks and their card and their wallet. Just to, you just do two seconds on how that works. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So if you think about if you're a bank, right, and you want your consumers to spend money at any merchant possible, it is incredibly inefficient for you as a bank to sign a deal with every single merchant out there, right? It is much more efficient to have an intermediary of some sort that does the heavy lift of building the network, right? right? Where they go work with thousands and millions of merchants and they also work with thousands of banks so that for a bank, you're working with one or two institutions. If you're a retailer, you're working with one or two. So Visa, MasterCard play a very important role of being the efficient conduits to facilitate payments. Right. But there are so many pieces within that equation. I'm oversimplifying it. But in order to just swipe your card at a retailer, there's like six, seven players in that value chain. There's the acquirer, the gateway, the network, the issuing processor. So there's so many different layers. And and so it's not as simple as it sounds to process just one card swipe. And so our approach was we we built uh, an infrastructure in parallel to Mm -hmm. our networks just for the purposes of receipt data. So we don't interfere with the transaction. We don't, we're not a payments company. Um, And the last piece I'll add, which is really, really important is because again, going back to the application layer and infrastructure layer in SKU data or receipt data, there isn't an infrastructure layer out there. Mm -hmm. Any company that uses receipts today is building their own infrastructure in-house, which is incredibly inefficient. Mm -hmm. And so our pitch and our kind of role in the ecosystem is to be that neutral infrastructure layer, makes it efficient for all parties that join the network. Mm -hmm. So that for retailers, there's one integration they need to work with. For consumer applications, there's one integration they need to work with. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's seamless. To answer your question around what does the experience look like for the consumer, mm-hmm. and that's a really important part, right? There's no friction. So if you go swipe your card at a retailer X, basically the itemized receipt would seamlessly show up in your app. Mm-hmm. You don't need to type in a phone number. There's no QR codes. It's just that seamless. It all happens on the back end. And uh, we'll go in more on you know the privacy side of things, which is really important to us as well. Yes, sure. That's neat. So, so you're basically the Visa or Mastercard or Discover card of inf- the information layer above the trans um, above the payment layer. That's one definitely one way of looking at it. Yes, gotcha. And so, and then you've got the two sides. You've got me as the end customer. Now I have access to all my receipts, and then you've got maybe my bank who's interested mm-hmm. in doing offers and so forth, or maybe Google interested and they're buying the data from you. 
anonymized to offer me new things. The one part I'll just clarify, they're not buying data from us. They're purchasing data from the retailers. And right. we are just the infrastructure, right? And not any institution can work with us. Institutions can only work with us when the consumer has permission them. So you as the consumer have to opt in. And only when you opt in can a your banking app or a budgeting app work with us. So those are two really important principles. This is a yeah. user permission network. Yes. Right? This is not like cookies or, or anything that there's just data being shared without your permission. And the second part is because we're infrastructure, where we never sell or buy data. Mm -hmm. We're just the pipes and the pipes kind of facilitate it. So really, as this notion of personalized experience, data monetization, but the really big permissioning part as we think about like how this works. Mm -hmm. So, so all right. So, who should really care about this receipt level data? I mean, I know we talked a little bit about banks and so forth. I mean, how does how does all that work? What is what are they thinking about? What is it that they're thinking about offering as they work with you? Yeah, maybe let's take a micro example and a macro example, right? Mm -hmm. For a second. So in a micro example, it is incredibly hard to personalize experiences for people without knowing what they're purchasing as a bank, right? Right. I'll give you a great example. I signed up for a budgeting app uh, a couple of weeks ago. And when I linked all my cards and everything, it told me I spent $2,000 in general merchandise last month. Yes. I don't budget by general merchandise and, you know, I, I budget by what did I buy for my dog and my house and, you know, groceries. And so right. item level information makes it relevant, makes yes. the experiences more relevant. So that's a really micro example. That's one, right? There's dozens and dozens of use cases. Right. Um, if you zoom out all the way and, and let's take a macro example, maybe one that's relevant now, right? We're talking about inflation quite a bit. Yes. And how do we actually know real time what's happening in inflation? Yes. Incredibly hard to know that. So it, there, there are some macro implications where we can power organizations like the FDA, the USDA, who could better understand what people are purchasing. Now, obviously, an important part here is, again, we're not selling or buying data. So mm -hmm. the retailers need to allow us, not us. Yeah. Right. So there's some retailers that are totally comfortable doing that. There's others that are not, which is totally fine. So this is, again, this goes back to the retailers always in control mm -hmm. of where their data goes. I know that in, in one of your uh, speeches, you mentioned the fact that you think that banks will need to provide full transparency to customers to remain competitive. First of all, what do you mean by full transparency in a, in a banking context? And, and why do you think that's so important to the competitive position? Yeah, it's it's a great question. So, I mean, the whole fintech landscape competes on one thing at its very core, and it's the user's attention. Mm -hmm. right? Whoever has engagement and attention typically right. finds a way to make money. And it's really hard to keep people engaged yes. when you don't have relevant experiences for them. Mm -hmm. right? And so it dovetails from the, the last uh, point as well, where transparency goes hand in hand with you as a consumer having access to all of your data. Mm -hmm. And and this is another piece of it. We're not the full puzzle, but it's a piece of the puzzle or, or receipt data. And and so, yeah, for banks, we are already seeing quite a bit of excitement. And I mean, another piece, to be fully candid, SKU data is not new. 
Mm-hmm. Right? The banks have known about it. This is, for decades, there have been organizations trying to get a hold of this at scale. Yes. Right? So it actually is banks have their own ideas of what they want to do with this data, and they're just looking at us, again, as the infrastructure layer that can help power it. Wonderful. Yeah, that's neat. So, all right, so that's been around for a while, and you guys are just doing a much better job of building that infrastructure and having the real MVP digital the whole whole way and really enabling that kind of, those rails, as you say, for the different institutions. So do you think that the data you're collecting is going to change where the power is in terms of customer behavior data? I mean, there's a a wonderful book by Shoshana Zuboff called The Surveillance Economy, right? Which really is pretty aggressive against Google and Facebook and so forth in terms of their monetizing of customer behavior data. I think people on the other side will say, well, look at all the benefit you get, which is unbelievable. You don't pay anything more, right? And that's the trade. How do you think Banyan enters that market? Does it change my relationship with the existing dominant folks? How does it relate physical to digital? Because you and I have talked about the fact that was it 15, 17% is online and then the rest of reality is still physical. How do, what do those dynamics look like from a power, market power and strategy standpoint? Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's a great, it's a great question. And I'll again, distinguish the, the infrastructure and application layer, right? So if you think about Google and Facebook, they've built the infrastructure to collect data and then the application to monetize that data, right? right through an ads business, et cetera. Fundamentally, our thesis is receipt data is, is, is incredibly valuable. And you're right in giving a full picture of what people are doing. And this is, we believe this is your and my data. This is people's data, right? This right. is, the so receipt is always a proof of transaction between two parties, the seller and the buyer. Yes. Right. And the seller being the retailer, the buyer being you and I, the consumer. Yes. And, and so in this instance, retailers house this data and know the value of this data. And so we, we see our role being fairly simple, really hard to execute, but fairly simple at its mm-hmm. core premise which is offering a platform where all of these retailers that have their own silos and pockets of data to participate, right? right? And the pitch would be collectively, this data is incredibly rich and powerful. This model does not work if there's just one retailer participating, right? It has to be done at scale. So I think to, to your point about the surveillance side of things, the other really big change we've noticed happen in the last few years is around privacy and our, as, as a society, our sentiment towards consumers owning their data, mm-hmm. yes. right? And consumers having a right to their data. Yes. So I, I think there have been, every time we talk about data and monetization of data, there is, there are some negative kind of, there's a lot of baggage with that sure. term, right? And it's, it's really important to distinguish when data monetization takes place at the discretion and permission of the consumer and when it does not, right? And so we really think what we're doing, it's harder, it takes longer, but it's done Mm -hmm. right. And it's done with the user's permission, it's done with the retailer's permission. So it is at its very core, we think it's a sustainable way, unlocking access to this data. Yeah, it seems like also, I mean, you're you're talking about doing this in a way that on the slide here, you know, this PII free, and transparency and so forth. Mm-hmm. The, the the 
it sounds like you're doing it in a, in a way that the consumer is actually going to recognize, not in a attaching click through contract thing. I don't know if you've ever seen, if you ever watched South Park, but this is wonderful, wonderful and horrible episode about where Cartman clicks on the contract and I'll just leave it at that. Lots of awful things happen later, you know, yeah. in a South Park kind of way, right? But anyway, yeah. So, but you're really talking about people understanding uh, that what they're giving up and why they're giving it up, not simply clicking through to get access to the software. Totally. And, and, uh, yeah, someone just dropped a, a note about Apple, right? And yep. such a great example, right? Where in order to provide a lot of services, Apple does not need personal information. Right. So a lot of your personal information on iPhones, right, lives on device. It never goes in a cloud. It never gets to... Similar with us. In order mm -hmm. for us to provide the service, we don't need to know your personal information. So your point about no PII is yes. really, really important because that's the ethical and the right way of doing this. It's not... And an attempt to aggregate data, thats it wouldn't work if that were the case. Yeah, no, it's fascinating. And the whether it's AI-powered recommendation, simplification, this kind of what's going on with hybrid experiences, whether it's purchasing um, things or services or work. I mean, how, does, how do you think this is going to evolve over time in terms of this next wave of different customer experiences? And and, and where do you guys, you know, hope to play? Yeah, it's, I'll, I'll caveat that the consumer experiences and customer experiences is one use case of SKU data. Yes. Right. There's still implications and applications around risk, right, and fraud and those right. side of things. But in the personalization side of things, it is what you buy in the offline world has always been a black hole. Mm -hmm. Right. And right. and any almost every digital organization has no visibility into that other than the retailer's own applications or the retailer's own website. Right. Right. So if you shop at retailer X and you have a loyalty program with retailer X and you go on retailer X's website, it, they, they can deliver some personal experiences. But retailer X has no idea what you're spending at every other retailer. So there's sure. these siloed experiences. And so. Being able to stitch and have a unified view of the consumer, if the consumer allows that, is really, really powerful. And, and so, yeah, we, we really do think one unique thing with any AI model or ML model is uh, needing a lot of longitudinal data to build a model out, right? right. So with every retailer we onboard, we're typically pulling in years of historical data as well. And if the consumer permissions, we can uh -huh. share historical data with that application, which is powerful because now you can build a personalization model that's actually relevant and appropriate for the consumer. Uh -huh. Sure. Yeah. You need that history to, to have a smart model, whether it's the, I mean, you and I talked about Google Translate, right? And their ability to munch down mm -hmm. all the books in Google Books and the proceedings of the EU that are published in over 20 languages and that volume of data makes their translator that much better. Oliver Alter has asked, how do you get the tens of thousands of retailers up and coming? And I guess, could you pop out a little bit? I know you and I have had a little bit about this conversation. Okay, we got a $20 trillion US economy and about 60% of that's consumer, right? So the majority of that. So of that 12 trillion, roughly, how do you get access to it? How, why do merchants join you? What's your strategy for getting there? Because those are big numbers, right? Thousands and thousands, your startup and how do you how do you get the volume they need? That's right. That's right. 
it is um it's it's a great question right and if you look at the largest two-sided networks in existence today right take yeah. ride sharing or house you, you you get the names i'm trying to refer to right happy um, hours at the bar i mean two-sided network yeah <laughs> exactly exactly so with the largest two-sided networks there's always uh, a notion that you need to either get supply or demand at scale very fast in order right. to make the network um valuable and efficient sure. for all parties. Yeah, right? I mean, famously, PayPal gave away $60 million worth of free money, right, to get there. Totally. Yeah. Totally. So there's, there's, and there's so many examples, you, Uber, and you could go down the list where, where there have been. And, and so, but at its very core, right, what's unique about us is, and you brought up the first party data point, right? We're not scraping data from anyone. Right. So we have to go to retailers and, and sign deals. And, the beauty of that is it's much more sustainable and long term, but the harder part is it takes a little bit longer to get sure. scale. But what one thing which is really important, right? I, if the value proposition does not resonate with the retailer, this right. is not going to work. And so retailers for a long time have known their data is valuable, and and but how how do they monetize it in a safe, secure, consumer permission manner where? Their competitor doesn't get access to this data, uh, yet the monetization value is high enough that it incentivizes them to join. There's a lot of factors. So we really think that the culmination of the right value prop, right timing, right consumer sentiment, right consumers want this. And that's really important for some retailers to participate. Uh -huh. All of these things put together... Uh, and then the last piece I'll add, right, there's a lot of network effects, right? When yes. uh, a large retailer shows, you know, significant increase in net margin, it's very hard for all the other retailers in that category not to follow. Sure. Right. So there are, but like every two-sided network, there are the early adopters, there's the believers, and then kind of like crossing the chasm. There's people that slowly need more right. validity, which is totally fine. We cannot sign every retailer day one either. So we need that ramp. Uh, but yeah, we're, we're really excited about how it's coming along. Yes, I know you're not in, in, in a position where you can describe it, but I mean, I think you're, you're, you're well on your way to that first trillion of volume, right? And that's trillion with a T, to paraphrase, what was it? Senator Dirksen said, you know, billion here, billion there, trillion here, trillion there, before you know it's real money. Yeah, my understanding, and, and I think some of the, um, the retailer concentration is in your favor, right? So you have the, Yes, there are many, many retailers, but there are also some mega retailers. And oh. you participate with a few of those and things get very good. So just yeah. for our audience. I'll add one part, right? And this goes to the point about $12 trillion in, in consumer spend, right? When when you go spend um, a few thousand dollars on an e-commerce website that sells exercise bikes, mm -hmm. for example, right? It's very easy to deduce what you purchased. Right. Sure. But when you go and spend $50 at a retailer that sells hundreds of thousands of different products, right. it is near impossible to deduce what did you buy at that retailer. And, and so off the 12-ish trillion in consumer spend, we actually believe that more than half of that, you can figure out just by the name of the merchant, what did you go in and buy? 
right? So if you spend $10,000 at a car dealership, fairly easy to deduce what, what is that, right? But yeah. if you spend, again, $100 at a big box retailer, really hard to figure that out. So mm-hmm. our TAM and the way we've been looking at the world is there's essentially $4 trillion of spend in the U.S. that's incredibly hard to get a hold of and figure out what is actually underneath the name of the merchant. Mm-hmm. And that's where we focus, right? And so you're right. That's our sweet spot. And we're not going after the rest of the spend because yes. it, it's uh, incremental value on, on that. Yeah. So you're really trying to find the, 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 the data that might have the best signal, if you will, most valuable incremental signal. One of our audience members has asked, you know, can you give details as to what types of data the banks seem more interested in sharing? I'm sorry, more interested in sharing versus less interested in sharing with regards to the SQ level data? Yeah. Yeah. So I'll, I'll clarify one thing. In this case, the banks would be consuming data from us, right? Yes. So in, in that regard, what's really fascinating is the introduction of SKU data in the banking world essentially just raises the full bar for the industry mm-hmm. on what the raw data is, mm-hmm. right? And it is really hard if one bank is offering better experiences driven by SKU data and the other is not. Yeah. So I'm, I'm not... Yeah, yeah, I can more than happy to double click on that. But we see one each receipt is created equal and not equal at the same time, hmm. right? There's a little bit of insight you learn from every single uh, receipt, but at the same time, there's some tickets that are more valuable than others. Could you give some examples of what will be a you know more valuable ticket than another? Yeah, yeah. So if you go in and if if you're someone that buys groceries once a week. And that once a week receipt with 50 items on that receipt, yes. you know, $300, that's going to be more valuable than a $2 quick purchase of gum, right? That's as an example. So mm-hmm. that's, that's how, you know, there's, that's, that's one way of looking at it, but there's many, many ways of determining. The flip side of it is if you go in and buy 10 gift cards, uh, and if you have your regular grocery purchase, that gift card is really insightful because it might be off pattern or might, might, might be in pattern for you mm-hmm. based on your previous spend. So that type of insight is incredibly valuable for the banks. And, and just as you've done this now, do the as the infrastructure provider, do the banks simply buy the raw signal from you folks, the raw data, or are you also doing analysis with the AI? No, we don't do any analysis. So our product, anyone can consume, again, that has consumer's permission, yes. is either an API feed or mm-hmm. it's a data feed. So it's, it's uh, yeah, so th- there's no analytics. There's no dashboard. It's it's just the raw signal and data. And that's neat. And then how does the business model work? Who do you charge for what? Yeah, so essentially the demand side, there's the banks, fintechs, they're paying us, and a big part of that fee goes to the retailer. Mm-hmm. So that's roughly how uh, marketplace, I guess, is one way of calling it, or a network, and so that kind of model. Yeah, yeah. And so one of the things I know from data I've seen and, and some data I've collected, that people actually do budgeting are a small minority, right? We, um, the, I'm sure lots of people talk about doing budgeting, but you know, and maybe 80% of people do budgeting between January 1st and January 6th or something, but... Mm-hmm. Starting January 7th or something like that, right? Um, the 85, 87% of people do not do budgeting. Mm-hmm. So we've given a lot of examples of budgeting and control and so forth. What are some of the other things that 
you know, is it returns? I know, gee, I can't find that receipt and I got to take this thing back. I mean, what yeah. are the other big categories? Yeah. Henry Ford's famously said, if you ask people what they want, they'll ask for a faster horse. Right. Right. And so sometimes true innovation isn't driven by what consumers are doing today. It's actually what is, how do you make it so seamless so that people will start doing it down the road? Or how do you automize it so that an AI bot can help you budget to keep you on track? Right. Right. Yes. I'll caveat that. We are not a better, faster, cheaper X. SKU right. data was simply never available before. So this is a step right. function leap from right. what was available. So we do think actually being the infrastructure layer, we're really excited about what the fintech community and the banking community builds on top of the data. Yes. And there's going to be experiences we have seen, and they'll be better than the ones we've seen in the past. And then there's going to be net new experiences we never thought. And I hope two years from now, where we're chatting about, oh my gosh, I could have never thought about Bank X deploying this really cool thing for its consumers. Yes. And but but to answer your question more specifically, there are so many use cases that get built off of SKU data, right from warranty notifications, product recall notifications, uh-huh. reordering, all the way down to purchase protection, right? And there's all right. sorts of consumer benefits and being being the infrastructure layer, we don't have an agenda of trying to push one use case over the other. Sure. If anywhere consumers want this data, this data yeah. gets routed. So we're we're quite and and you can see this, I guess, if you zoom out just from us and see the broader fintech ecosystem. Sure. We're seeing fintech products being built today that I would have personally not thought of two mm-hmm. years back, three years back. So it's really exciting when you introduce a raw ingredient to see the community, what what they end up building on top of it. Yeah, no, you remind me of when Sears uh, and Roebuck was a healthy company and when they were bringing together Allstate Insurance and also, I forget which of the rental car companies they bought and, and the notion that, gee, we can really integrate all this stuff. And, and, and I think the insight was, and United tried a similar thing with buying a hotel, American tried to buy hotels and, and, and a car rental agency. And I think the what, what was the interesting lesson from those two experiences was that the information could be the glue. You don't necessarily have to own the assets, mm-hmm. right? And and it's been a long time coming, but you're saying, I mean, a lot of the things, the kind of things that Sears used to offer when it was healthy, I don't know if they still do, like warranties and access to repair. And they were very early in, basically, they didn't exactly package it this way, but you know, you'll have access to a washer and dryer as long as you stay in the Kenmore family and you buy our retail and you, know, you buy it and we fix it. And we get you oh. a new one when you need it. And it's very much like all the quote unquote modern concepts of renting now, right? Like, yeah. you know, Volvo and Ford, you know, tried where you basically pay, you know, per month fee and you just get access to a great car, right? Yeah. I mean, how many times have anyone even in the audience, right, have bought a big electronic and you're given this piece of paper that's a warranty card you're supposed to put in the mail right yeah how many of us really do that so there's so many post-purchase experiences that can be built by simply connecting the loop and and like any infrastructure layer it's not all figured out day one and it needs to organically evolve because there's a lot of really big organizations right big banks big retailers participating and we are not in a, we're a startup. We're not in a position to tell the big bank what to do and not do. And 
the retail. So the retailer sets the rules, right? And the retailer's right. in control and the consumer's in control. So we take a backseat in what to do with the data because that's not our job. We just make sure the data shows up fast, clean, at mm -hmm. scale, and we're growing the network with as many nodes as possible on each side so that each side gets value off of it. And, and Jan, is this largely a, a U.S. company that you are now, or are you thinking about doing this globally? Yeah, it, it's definitely going to be global one day. I think for any early stage company, focus is a very important uh, uh, ingredient in the mix. So right sure. now, we're incredibly focused on the U.S. market with a specific subset of retailers. Uh, but over time, yes, we totally anticipate growing. Internet. Interesting. So you're an active participant in the fintech community, and and there's so much activity. Everything from crypto, decentralized finance, blockchain to solution of the banks. I'm not a believer that the banks going away, but that's another whole conversation. Or we can go, go into it if you want to. The what are some of the more interesting things that you're seeing, either as it relates to banking or not, that you really say, "Wow, I didn't expect that," and that's powerful, and I think that will work. Yeah, I mean. It's it's a great question. I mean, the personal one for me is I'm a I'm an immigrant to the U.S. Right? I grew up in yes. India, and when I came over to the U.S., I couldn't get a credit card for almost until I think a couple years back. It really? was a while. It was wow. a while, and I didn't have a long social security history. My parents are in India, so I couldn't. There was no one to co-sign, you know, a card. And one of the use cases we saw recently it was really exciting our fintechs that are serving the underbanked unbanked population and people yes. that have historically found it hard to get credit and and so there is this financial inclusiveness piece that mm -hmm. the fintech world is tackling really well right now and, and I'm really excited to see that personally so that's that's definitely one piece of it and then from my healthcare days what's exciting is there's now neobanks and challenger banks and fintechs that have started propping up that cater to people with Alzheimer's and people with dementia and these mm -hmm. such interesting products where, you know, the intersection of health and finance is actually mm -hmm. really big for many people in the country. Yes. And so how do we help people deal with that? So there, there's some really, really fascinating use cases being built, which I get excited about personally, but I'm a big proponent of you mentioned blockchain and things as well. At its very core, solving a problem for people, then we need to figure out what's the right technology to use in sure. order to solve that problem scalably, mm -hmm. but not the other way around, which is let's figure out the tech we want to use and then go find a problem that fits it. That's sure. not how I operate. So, yes, I think there's, there will be applications for, for blockchains, technology, and various other novel tech that's coming out right now. But at its core, you need to solve a problem for people first. That's that's most of finance, right? Or for that matter, as as the one of the professors who taught me marketing once said, people don't buy drills, they buy holes, right? So you know, and you know, as long as you stay focused on the hole and not the drill, you're you're in a good spot. What are what are some of the the, the things that you think are overblown uh, right now that in the in the in particular in fintech, you say I, I hear people, but I'm just skeptical that that's going to go the way they yeah. think it's going to go. It's it's a great question. I mean, I'm sure many people, even on uh, in the audience, uh, have probably gone through the internet bubble 
in the late 90s, early sure. 2000s. And one of the things that came out of that was there was so much innovation that was taking place. Yes. Um, and, and some of it, to your point, was a bubble and was over investing in some categories. But what it led to was truly the, the innovative companies that had product market fit, that had the right customer base. Sure. They made it through. They made it through, right? And and so I think we're in a time right now where, yes, I, I think uh, fintech, rightfully so, deserves a lot of attention, a lot of capital, you know, deployed mm-hmm. because these are really expensive problems to solve. And if you're a neobank, it's roughly the same cost to stand up a bank if you want to swipe your card once or a million times, sure. right? The, the first kind of step cost to set up some of these fintechs is really expensive. So I think to answer your question on what's overblown or what's, I think some might be, but again, I am not looking at all these fintechs day to day and that's not my my role. So I'm not as deeply tuned, but at the same time, you need a lot of incredibly excited people that are optimists to try and build innovative stuff. Otherwise, we don't end up innovating and we end up just uh, creating a better mousetrap for X. Right. So let's say you were back at Campbell Soup and you had the the information that Banyan can now provide. What what would you have done differently with it? What would you do differently today with it? Yeah, it's it's a great question. And again, Campbell's, in our case, wouldn't really be a buyer of data from Banyan, right? Because the parameters, you need to have consumer's permission. And so... If in the case of Campbell's, I could go to my retailers that I sell products through and those retailers could make data available in a standardized format for for me to use. And so I do think there's a lot of CPG benefits and implications of at its very core, what we're doing is bringing finance and retail closer, right? If you see the Venn diagram, Today, yeah. the Venn diagram intersects only with Visa, MasterCard to pro- process payments. Mm-hmm. But Banyan, the Venn diagram is much, much overlapped. So I think there are a lot of implications and benefits. But at the end of the day, it's really important to recognize that when you go buy a product at a retailer, it's still the retailer that owns that relationship with the consumer. So the retailers need to figure a way out of bringing their suppliers and the manufacturers and CPGs Uh into our ecosystem because we contractually cannot go and we don't go right to, uh, to, to the CPGs. So yeah, it's, there are some massive problems to be solved for CPGs, but that's today we're focused on kind of the retail side of things and we'll work with retailers as, as we scale what is the next gen solutions for them yes and and has the covid challenge decreased retailers ability to focus on this increased it left it the same it's definitely increased uh, the interest in what we're doing and focus because one thing that covid has done is it changed the script of retail right yes. and how to be a retailer right and because of that change of script so fast, retailers had to invest a lot of time, energy, money into servicing this new world of retail yes. in a very, very short amount of time. Right. So I, I forget who uh, had put out the stat, but if, 
believe it was like five years of digital transformation taking place in six months or something. Uh, right. I might be wrong right. on that, but you get yeah. the idea that there was so much technical lift and that's obviously expensive, right? So for uh, mm -hmm. a lot of the retailers, data monetization became an equally high priority item where right. if we're going to invest so much in changing the retail playbook, we need to also invest in making sure this data, which is their biggest asset, arguably, Sure. Um, is unlocked and you're tapping into the value of that asset. So it actually, COVID and what's changed the playbook essentially has has definitely opened up retailers. And, and you can see that a lot of retailers have been hiring a lot of different and diverse people from different backgrounds and industries. And so yes. there is this renewed focus on what is retail 2.0? What does that look like? Mm -hmm. um, yeah. What's, what's your kind of view of what it looks like? Uh, I imagine it's got some of these things in it that were a notion of simplified payments and so forth. Yeah, I, I think there, there's going to be a few big things that will happen, right, on the retail side. The, mm -hmm. the first part is being ready for a consumer's request at any time. Uh, yeah. And coming to the point where you can potentially predict that request so that you can fulfill accordingly, so that you can ship according. There's a lot of implications that happen when you know what people are going to buy or you have a pretty good idea of what people are going to buy next. Mm -hmm. and, and so I think the retail world is going to get incredibly personalized to people's experiences and what people want to do. Mm -hmm. um, and personalization also goes hand in hand with convenience. Yeah. Right? It, it, if, if I have a personalized experience, but it's not convenient for me, I'm not necessarily going to use it. Mm -hmm. So personalization, convenience goes hand in hand. And so there's a lot of, lot of pieces that go, go with it. But there's, it's such a broad category, right? That the retail as a whole includes people that are selling stuff to me every day, right? Grocers, everyday spend, all the way to electronic retailers that I buy stuff from once a year or twice a year. So it's really hard to give a generalized view for for all categories. Gotcha. Yeah, it's fascinating. I mean, I'd like to switch gears a little bit. So, because as an entrepreneur, look, you're, uh, and I'm sure you've heard the phrase, the great resignation, right? People are leaving their jobs or retiring or whatever. And, and we have this, there's good employment at the low end, but certainly at the middle and the top, massive over demand for qualified talent. And I mean, you're right in the middle of, oh my goodness, I mean, you know, AI talent, data talent, network talent, I mean, come on. I mean, I, I suppose there's a few categories that would be more in demand than some of the folks you're employing, but you're right up there, right? As a leader in this environment with COVID and the challenges and some people think frothy valuations on your competitors and all that other stuff, how do you, how do you think about leadership? Because I think what you have is an acute version of what every leader has, whether they're in a big organization or, or in a startup. So how do you how do you think about that? Yeah, it's it's you're right, um, and and we've been incredibly lucky to attract some of the best people on, on the planet to help solve what we're trying to do. I think there's a few pieces, right? So like how retail's playbook has changed, I think work has changed fundamentally because of. Yeah. I don't mean that it's all going to be remote from now on. It's, all, no. No, it's just the playbook has changed. And I no. think with that, what happens is let's take a few things as an example. First, 
this arbitrary geography fence we used to have for a job role that right. only going to hire in this. That's not a thing anymore with at least our company. We yes. have people in uh, 10 states, I think. So we have fairly uh, diverse team across the country. That's a really important piece. The second part that really matters to a lot of people when we've spoken to is, especially when they work from home, having flexibility. Yes. And flexibility is impossible to have if you don't have empathy for people. Right. Mm-hmm. And so everyone's living a different life. If they have kids or they have a dog or whatever they might be going right. on. So we don't have a traditional nine to five and you're trying to do this in these hours. We let people set that and our team members set that. And, and it's really, really important as, uh, and this goes top down to respect those boundaries and respect what people are set. So it, it's a part of my job is definitely hopefully creating an environment where people can do their best and cannot create that environment without empathy, without compassion, without really understanding what helps people do their best. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, and, and it's an ever evolving playbook. So, you know, where we were six months back is very different to today on how we see, you know, work and how, how, how we are measuring that. So right. it's, we're still under uh we're coming close to the 40 people mark. Mm-hmm. So uh, not not the five people <laughs> in the garage stage uh, and definitely not the couple hundred people stage yet. Right. Uh, but a team big enough where this matters a lot and yes. culture is really, really important. And I, I honestly think most people that have joined our companies for the culture and the vision and the mission we're trying to solve for. It, yes. So, yeah. How, how do you describe that mission? to potential and new employees? It's it's so funny because oftentimes I ask them in our first meeting, yes. like how would you describe to your parents or your spouse or your kid or whoever, how would you describe what Banyan does? It's really fascinating because all of them have a different way of telling our story. And as an infrastructure company, that's the dream. That's the dream. When you take an infrastructure and make it your own and yes. kind of envision a world once the infrastructure is laid. Yes. Um, so a part of it is uh, we're not prescriptive on here is exactly the vision and mission. We're going. No, we know what our vision is, and it is really unlocking access to this data at scale. Right. And, and our mission is to do this with the consumer's permission at the center mm-hmm. of the equation. But other than that, the way people interpret this is actually really personal, and, mm-hmm. and we definitely encourage that. Uh, so, yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting question. Fascinating. So clarity on permission from the customer, clarity on access to this information at scale, and clarity on being an infrastructure, right? And then how you make all that happen really sounds like it's evolving or like what the how the piece parts fit together in that. Correct. And that second part of how this happens, that is incredibly disciplined and organized, Mm -hmm. right? Because in order to set and stand a network like this up, it all comes down to our ability to execute, Sure, right? And execution is a very thoughtfully, carefully choreographed uh, dance between supply and demand and the technology side of things. So, yeah, it's, it's... the next six months, 12 months is carefully mapped internally 
yes. because every retailer we add has a lot of value on the other side of the network. Vice versa, every big bank adds a lot of value to the retailers. So right. there is a little synergy that needs to happen on, on, on that front for sure. Wonderful. Well, I just want to ask you one last question. Is there uh, what would be the the one thing that you would like participants in this domain? That is, whether I'm a brand, I'm a retailer, I'm a bank, I'm another party in this to understand this. So, what do you think they have to keep their eye out for over the next three years? You know, one to three years in this space to 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 be competitive. What's kind of the 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 one message you'd like them to take home, practical implication? I, I would say data monetization and data sharing as a, as a concept. There's players that do it right, yeah, ethically, uh, right privacy compliances, right. and they're going to be the ones that last and are going to be sustainable. Mm-hmm. And then there's other players that don't do it right. So the one takeaway would be to really... I would ask all anyone exploring the space to take the time to really mm-hmm. understand the difference between the folks that are doing it right and other parties out there. So, yeah. Well, thank you, Jan. That's that's wonderful. Good luck in your endeavor here. You're, it, I mean, it's. A, I talked to a lot of startups, and there are a few that are doing it at the scale that your your ambition is taking you to. And I'm always, I'm always mindful of the words of Elon Musk, where he said. Sure, it's easy to entrepreneur. It's just like the, every day, it's staring into the abyss and chewing broken glass as the CEO. So, <laughs> so you look pretty good for a guy who's staring into the abyss and chewing broken glass. And thank you for taking the time and uh, and hope hope our audience found this uh, useful. It's certainly, it's coming, right? The, the stuff you're doing is coming. We, of course, me personally, and we at Manifold really hope it's Banyan that gets it done. And and if not you, it will come. And so so thank you for sharing that with us. And take our take our folks to, to what we're going to be doing next and the rest of the story. So thanks so much, Jayhan, for taking the time. I know you're as busy as the day is long. So appreciate thank it. Thank you for having me. Thank you for having me. That's it for this episode. For more information and advice on how to become a growth innovator in your own organization, visit us at manifold.group. And if you enjoyed this episode, we would love a review on iTunes, Spotify, or whichever platform you use. Thanks as always for listening. We will see you next time.